Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Interested in some fresh marketing ideas that have been real-world tested by colleges and universities and actually work? We'd love to share. Come download MDT Marketing's free 2020 Marketing Strategies Guide, filled with stats and highlights on digital marketing initiatives exclusively for colleges and universities. Download the Strategies Guide for free at learn.mdtmarketing.com. MDT Marketing has been a leader in delivering marketing solutions for institutes of higher education since 1995. Come leverage our knowledge and download our strategies guide at learn.mdtmarketing.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today and beyond sometimes. Always with you. Speaking of the beyond. Um, always with me, my co-host, Elizabeth Liba, who was just uh, nominated, or nom- nom- not nominated, but has been recognized as the top three, one of the top three voices on LinkedIn for 2020 when it comes to education. Liz, oh. uh, pretty incredible. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it has been a whirlwind of a week. I'm like going on like maybe three, four hours sleep per night for the week because it's been pretty hectic. But hey, it's Friday and we're happy to welcome Dr. Campo. So I'm excited. I'm ready to get it popping. Let, let's <laughs> let's get it popping because it's Friday, not Friday. Friday. Today, today and this Friday, we have Dr. Carlos Campo. He is president of Ashland University. Carlos, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, I'm in my bedroom where I usually am. I'm, I'm hanging in there uh, at my executive offices at the Salustio residence. Liz, how are you? I'm good. Well, I'm actually in my bedroom, but I'm in the master bedroom closet, which is my studio. So I'm doing well, amazing. My wife set me up. She bought like this dual monitor stand with a standing desk deal. It oh, actually feels pretty technological. Excuse here. me. Yeah. That's an upgrade. You had the ironing board, so you've upgraded. I, I, I had, it was a two ironing board uh, combo with uh, a couple of boxes for a stand. There you go. There you go. There you go. Upgrade. So, so speaking Fancy. of evolved thinking, speaking of evolving. I love um, it. Love we, it. We, we do want to ask you, Carlos, how you're doing. How's your family during these times first before we jump? Thanks. I really appreciate that. You know, COVID's touched us all. You know, frankly, it's been a tough week on campus and not because of the virus. Interestingly, we just had a student who was struck by a tree in a windstorm of all things, and she uh, perished as a result. Uh, oh, you know, no. Yeah, 19 year old leader. Oh. Just shocking. Yeah. So you can imagine the whole community. Yeah. It just uh, that hit us all pretty hard. But frankly, you know, all of the stress that comes. Uh, you know, the mental health issues that you all know so well that's been highlighted in other areas around uh, COVID is certainly prevalent on our campus. But, you know, we're also looking at what we've been able to accomplish in a year that was extraordinarily challenging. We're coming to the end of our semester, at least face-to-face. And, you know, the students who were able to hang in there did not have their academic goals impeded. So I, I guess we're celebrating that for sure. So, Carlos, you've uh, uh, obviously mental health is an important thing on your campus. And you know, there's been this piling on of issues throughout 2020, you know, COVID and mental health and this problem and that problem, students going home, coming back. And there's all this layered, layered issues, financial issues, health issues, uh, social issues. Talk about mental health on your campus and what you guys have been doing to ensure the, the I don't know, the, the clarity of thought for students. We recently had a board meeting and the student Senate president said that he felt that the mental health issues had reached a crisis point on campus. And, you know, we're grateful we just hired another uh, DNP, you know, a, 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 a nurse who was a doctor uh, to be on our campus, who's got some background in mental health counseling. We had added another mental health counselor last year. Last year was the first time in our school's history that we had a waiting list for mental health issues on our campus. And now we're frankly doing triage when it comes to mental health. So we're also doing, you know, 
tele-mental health counseling, which a lot of places have done, which has helped with that burden a little bit. We've even gotten, we have a very active local community organization that really are, uh, it's, a, it's a group of pastors who said, you know, we want to help. We, some of us are licensed counselors, some of us aren't, but we certainly can do what we can and we want to make ourselves available to the student body. And so it was great to see them step in and assist. Some of our alums who are skilled in this area said, you know what, count me in to make me part of the, the effort. So we've had an all hands on deck kind of approach. And as I said, you know, we've been counting down. We had planned all along to go to all virtual learning at Thanksgiving. And so I think while, you know, there's no magic bullet, we all know we're coming back to a campus that'll still be strained with COVID. We feel like we were able to respond, but it's, it's still really tough. And it's not just students. You know, we're hearing that faculty feel like they're many at a, a breaking point because, you know, they're, they're human beings with families and kids who aren't in school. And now they've got to homeschool their kids and take all their classes online. And how do you do that when you're teaching sculpture and all the rest? So uh, definitely not an easy time when it comes to mental health, but we feel like as a campus, we've been very upfront about it and dealing with it relatively well. That's good. And, you know, it's um, Liz, who was it that we just had on that that was telling us that there was a stat that said like one in one in four students has contemplated suicide uh, undergraduate students. That was that was like last week. It was like last week. And and that that was like a smack in the face statistically to think about that and to think about how fast that could be growing unfortunately hopefully it's not hopefully we're we're you know but there is this almost this transition of service uh that a university provides right we are educational institutions whether you're online or on ground doesn't matter we teach people learn there's that this added component of counseling and psychology in in you know self-confidence building or you know overcoming you know this the the need for empathy uh that uh, is a really a added I don't want to say feature, but it's an added responsibility we have as educators, Carlos. Are you seeing that from me? You know, do you, do you feel that that that's true, and do you have an administration around you that that looks at the responsibility in that way? Very much so. You know, we are a mid-sized private, and like most private schools, we still believe in character education, whole person education. So we talk that talk a lot. We call it the accent on the individual here at Ashland. And that's been our focus for many, many years. It's kind of our calling card. So absolutely, that wraparound service, as you, as you mentioned, is part and parcel to the ethos on our campus. But it, it has. It's all been strained. It's all been stretched. And it's all disordered, isn't it? I mean, it's that whole idea that, gosh, this just isn't the way we wanted it to be. And so we're not just making do. We definitely have some experts on campus who are helping us stay at the cutting edge of this new reality. But at the same time, it's, you know, you talk about uncharted waters. I think they're uncharted, they're deep, they're dark, they're uh, wave filled. And so uh, it's, it's definitely been a challenge. Well, I don't want to make it seem all doom and gloom because there are so many good things that have happened. And, and Liz, uh, um, I'll pass it to you after, after this question, but I, I want to ask you, Carlos, of what stuck out to you? What stuck out to you that has been innovative or really inspirational, whether it's been staff or faculty, something that the university has done that maybe you didn't even think was possible, uh, that, that COVID became a catalyst for, what's impressed you about uh, your university? Right, well, one of the things that most people don't know about Ashland is that we have the largest correctional education program in the country. So we're part of an experimental site initiative that began under the Obama administration and has continued. And when I came to Ashland five years ago, we had about 350 students that we were teaching mainly in the local area. We have the longest running correctional ed program in the country, but we now have a a tech partner whereby we buy a tablet for every student. And we're now in 11 states administering education through these tablets to over 3000 students. And I guess my point is when COVID hit, and education stopped at every correctional institution pretty much in the country. It didn't stop for our students because of this technology solution. And so I'll tell you what, I got so many notes and cards from folks who are incarcerated who said, you've given 
my life new meaning because of this program that I've qualified for. There's no cost to the inmate. There's no cost to the institution. The federal government through the Pell Grant pays for all the education and then we subsume any additional costs. So it's definitely missional for us. But if I can tell you, I even went uh, last semester before COVID hit, we even did graduation ceremonies for these mainly men, but women as well. Mm. And to see these men talk about what it meant. And I even talked to a mom that said, you don't realize that my son has had a number of adjectives connected to his identity for his entire life. And there are things like loser and felon and convict. And now he's adding graduate to that list. And it's simply reframed who he is as a human being. So I would say that's one of those bright spots to see that our correctional-led program not only didn't slow down uh, during COVID, but in many ways it remained a, a beacon of hope for so many students. Wow, that's, that's pretty incredible. Yes, it really is uh, one of those, as I say, missional elements of our work that's uh, that we're really proud of. But yes, and we saw on campus just a myriad of cases of student helping students. Uh, the fact that students took this disease so seriously, I mean, we did see a spike at the end of this week and we've said to our faculty, hey, listen, go, go virtual a few days early. Let's get the students home where they're safer if they're able to go home safely. But outside of that, they've really taken it seriously and that's been magnificent to watch. And even to see so many folks, both on our campus, faculty, staff, and students say, you know, in this COVID world, at least we're working toward an aim that is noble, that is still intellectual, that is still growing a human being, that is still saying in this community, we have a bright mission that, that can still move forward despite these challenges. I think all of that has been inspiring too. That is inspiring. Liz, I know you think that's inspiring. I know you. Yeah, you know, that actually, I was a little speechless there because it speaks to the power, the, that program, the transformational power of education. And I think that's why so many of us love to work in this sector because we see just how much uh, education can change somebody's life. And I think sometimes when we think about, like Joe said earlier, the doom and gloom, and a lot of people are talking about ROI, and a lot of people are talking about student loan, and a lot of people are talking about the things that we're not doing as a sector, but there are a lot of things that we're doing right. Can you speak to, for those that are not as familiar, a lot of us that are that have been working in the field are familiar with Ashland. I know I've, I've always seen you as a staple, your, your programs and, and your online presence and things of that nature. But for those that might not be as aware, because you talked about this particular program and it being more of a, a mission-driven program, give us an overview like of the program, what you offer there, what types of programs you offer, what type of student you serve, and your theological seminary for those that might not be as aware of what Ashland is all about. Sure, thank you. We were founded in 1878 by the Brethren, a really small denomination, only about 20,000 members worldwide. Frankly, when I came to Ashland, I thought I knew lots about uh, denominations in our country, and I knew almost nothing about the Brethren. But I've learned that when they founded the school back in 1878, they had in mind a professional approach. So they started training teachers so, and pastors, so that's uh, not unusual. But what was unusual was even in 1878, we admitted women. And so we were one of the first Ohio schools to admit women and certainly one of the first to admit women from its start. So it wasn't something that we had to sort of ease our way into. It was part of our approach from the beginning. The brethren have a, a very flat hierarchical view. They, they uh, think that, um, you know, that the hierarchy that exists in, in other areas has no place in the brethren ethos. So I think you still see that on our campus and certainly that professional focus, that teaching focus is still really strong. Other than Ohio State, we do more professional development for teachers than any school in the state. That's any other school in the state. And we weren't that far behind Ohio State. So that's really been a flagship for us for a long time. But you'll also see really strong programs in, in business. Uh, we have a really strong undergraduate uh, program that allows our students to invest over a million dollars of our endowment to in active investing. So uh, that program has gained some notoriety regionally and nationally as well. And a really strong health sciences and nursing program that is extraordinarily strong that, uh, and all of this 
really is fueled by a strong liberal arts core. So like so many privates, we have a very strong liberal arts core that features, you know, that sort of standard view that uh, we want to go broad and maybe not so deep, but definitely a broad understanding of the world around them. And that's really what Ashland is all about. We, we recruit about 85 to 90% of our students from a 90 mile radius. So you take a lasso and ca capture Columbus and Cleveland, and you're gonna catch a lot of kids in between those areas. A lot of rural kids who've come literally right off of a dairy farm or a, you know, a cornfield and into classroom, really hardworking, a lot of grit on our campus. I think that characterizes our student body. And then, as I mentioned, you know, over 3000 of them are behind bars, they're serving time, they're within five years of release, almost all of them. And they are working toward a, a degree and they will graduate as a national grad and they'll be part of our alumni base as well. So that gives you an overview and a sense of uh, who we are. We have a really strong athletics program, 23 sports. We are out of the last C, we have two women's national champions since 2013. They finished last year undefeated and number two in the nation didn't get a chance to play because of COVID the final, but uh, so very strong athletics uh, department as well. And that's certainly part of who Ashland is. Our theological seminary have been training brethren for over a hundred years. So even though it's not a big denomination, we get a lot of broadly evangelical denominations who study at the seminary. And that seminary also reaches out through Cleveland and Columbus campuses. They had a uh, campus in Detroit that recently closed, but you know, we have a fair amount of Methodists. You know, if you look at Mennonite and other sort of cousins to the brethren, this Anabaptist tradition continues and you'll see some of those at the seminary as well. Interesting. And can you speak a little bit about your online program? So I'm really curious to hear about that. I know I've always seen you guys have had an online presence. How extensive is that? And has it, the focus changed or evolved since the COVID-19? Or have you pretty much maintained the same presence that you have uh, had? How was that evolved over time? Right. You know, I think we saw a coalescing of a lot of factors. As you say, we've had an online program for some time. It has been specialized in the areas of strength that we've had, as I say, you know, a lot of it focused on education and business, very strong uh, programs in health sciences online as well. But we did see even prior to COVID as a Midwestern private, boy, we saw the demographic shift that was happening nationally. And as a Latino leader, I'm certainly aware of the fact that the demographic shift that's happening nationally certainly is impacting the Midwest as you're seeing quite a few uh, students now opting uh, for other options. Uh, tuition pressure has been very difficult for privates in the Midwest as well. So all that to say, it's helped us focus more on, on online and graduate as many schools are. And so we took our strength that already existed and now we are pushing out more online and graduate programs. We're adding a new physician assistant program uh, this fall as well. But when you think about those 3,000 plus students studying online in correctional institutions, th those make up the bulk of our online students now. So we, we have tenfold increased that student body. And that's where we've seen the greatest growth. And while it's difficult to predict what the winds of political change might do. This has been an experimental site initiative. As you know, in 1995, 1994, the Pell Grant was available to a number of incarcerated folks. That was removed in 1994, it was no longer politically tenable. But we're seeing that the benefits for education in the incarcerated realm is such is so strong now, it doesn't uh, really follow political lines the way it has in the past. So our mm -hmm. sense is that the Pell Grant will be restored for all. And so one of the things that we are ramping up for is you know, a significant increase in the size of that program, taking it from over 3000 to maybe get to you know, 10,000 or so within the wow. next uh, three years. Mm -hmm. That would be amazing. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, that's a really an, a unique program. I didn't yeah. come across anybody doing anything like yeah. that at all, um, in any way. 
in fact that's a, that's a first for us in 115 episodes or so so you know uh, congratulations that's that sounds like a really incredible program and i'm i'm glad you brought it up twice so far because it's uh yeah, really unique unique for sure it is it's a distinctive for us and a great team that put it together you see lots of schools like bard and others who have you know smaller face-to-face -face programs that are terrific and transformational but this is the first program that's really been able to scale in this way, still keep the quality up and give uh, those students an opportunity to graduate with a phenomenal credential under their belt. We had a, a guest that I, before Joe jumps back in, I just wanna address this really quick because this is something that Joe uh, kind of took some, uh, I guess it was a little bit, what was it, Joe? I, I don't wanna say you were offended, but there was a, a, a very well-known thought leader who talked about the different schools and which ones were probably in danger of closing, merging. Um, and one of the, the categories that they talked about was like some of the small liberal arts, some of the more um, theological, you know, maybe uh, religious-based institutions might be those that might be a little bit too specialized and those ones might be, you know, in that category, how do you navigate that? You know, as a, as a school that is very specialized and, and very unique, you guys have been obviously very resilient because you've been there and, and have uh, thrived in the time you've been there. What are some things when you, when you hear some of those things where people feel like, oh, if you're small or you're specialized or you're, you have like a religious uh, base uh, or Christian based program that you're not going to be as resilient and able to make it through the all this evol evolution and all these different changes and, and disruption that we're having in the sector. Sure. Well, I think they, they make some salient points along those lines. I, I guess from our perspective, quality supersedes all things. It may sound, mm. you know, a bit trite, but I remember and I know I'm not a young man, but when I think back to my younger days, I attended a parochial school. I went to Catholic school when I was a kid. Well, I was in Catholic school with kids who were Jewish, who were of no faith. And we were all in, in school together because the school was quality. It, we were not driven by its religious affiliation as much as we were driven by the quality of instruction. I mean, the Sorbonne was a, a pretty religious place when it was founded, but uh, people, didn't necessarily come for religious training as much as they came for the intellectual diversity that, that they had. So, you know, we will always lead with quality, but I, I will say that yes, the mother of invention is rather amazing. And what people will do to ensure that their missions thrive is uh, pretty exciting from my perspective. I would suggest that while we've all heard, you know, this ongoing bell ringing of the demise of smaller privates in higher education. What I think that we're not hearing enough of is specialization. And while there is a, you know, a negative to putting too many eggs in a single basket, if you're really great at those things, if your basket is strong and your eggs are protected and those chicks are healthy and grow up to be really great chickens, you know, uh, something tells me you, you might have a model that works. And so for, Ash, for Ashland's sake, we are going to stay focused on th that which we've done really well and do it even better. And from our perspective, it's really about finding your audience. I often talk about payola. You're both too young to know what that is. But, you know, back in the day, they paid disc jockeys. And why did they pay disc jockeys? Because if, if you play your music long enough, your audience will find you. Yeah. So our, our sentiment is we, we've got to keep playing our music. Our audience is out there. And, you know, one of the things we've really tried to push is we're, we're pushing against this perception. And you, you are both living in this space, so you know whether this perception is real or not. But the perception that Pew and others are reporting is, is that Americans believe higher ed is going in the wrong direction. Well, we never felt that way until two years ago. So two years ago, for the first time in... in U.S. history, we believe higher education is going in the wrong direction. Not reason number one, cost, no surprise. Reason number two is this idea that students are being inculcated and not educated. So at Ashton, we've really picked up on that. We, and this is part of, a deep part of the Brethren ethos, even though we're religiously affiliated, no student signs a statement of faith, unless you're at the seminary, of course, but you know, uh, that's not required of faculty here. We, our feeling is, and we actually trademarked this, I'm smiling to myself because it's kind of funky that we trademarked a, 
uh, marketing slogan, but we felt that strongly about it. We just found out two weeks ago that here it is. It's teaching students how to think, not what to think. So we trademarked that. that phrase. Oh, good, Liz. <laughs> I mean, that's I'm, awesome. I'm going to take that as an aff anecdotal affirmation of the uh, line, but we liked it a lot and we've got a lot of traction on that. Now, again, it's one thing to say it, another thing to live it. We feel like it's simply codifying something we've done since our founding. But I will tell you that if we, if we can do that, not sell that, but do that and live that, uh, our alums say that that's what they like most about Ashland. They never felt there was a political or religious framework that was being dumped on them, but instead they were really probing intellectual history. And I'll give you a quick example. One of our programs, our Ashbrook Scholars Program, uses no textbooks, none. Instead, they read only primary texts they start with Xenophon and they end with Barack Obama's speeches. That's that's right now they're the panoply of offerings, but they're not reading them from any textbooks. They're literally reading the original text. So that's just one illustration. So our hope is that not that that the trademark phrase will catch on so much, but the ethos of the school will, and that will be very attractive to lots of students. And and now uh, <clears throat> now the marketer has to jump in a little bit. The marketer in me. There you go. Um, so just to add a little validation to, to that thought and, and what you're doing. So I've trademarked two things at my university so far. One has been socially conscious education, which yeah. uh, <clears throat> actually got denied because it's descriptive the first time we appealed it and got it, right? Because I thought that's going to be worth something. And that was two years ago, socially conscious education. Uh, it's helped us a lot, brand. Second one is online by design. Okay, so so um, when COVID hit, I went and got that because I said everybody's going to go online. I better go get that. Um, and so so uh, well done because I think you know we that's that's it's I, I don't know if it's a uh, you could call it a slogan. You can call it a, a part of your brand. Right. And and I like that. I, I like that strategic foresight that you and your team saw to say that because. And that's a good that's a good validation, too, because you're talking about American Marketing Association past winner for last year. Right. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. Yeah. Oh, we, we did win team of the year, <laughs> uh, team of the year, of the year for go. marketing, the American oh, Marketing great. Association. Congratulations. So so it's smart. It's smart to do that, because now when you slap that on something, you know, you you are branding yourself along the way and brand more than ever yes. is important. More than ever, it's important. And institutions all across the country are learning how to either A, compete in the online space for students or brand themselves um, uh, in their regional area and try to dominate that market. And there is a business side of being in education, of course. Sorry, I I'm, I'm, uh, had a moment there. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, that's a Liz and uh, Elvin will make fun of me that I say I'm getting on my soapbox for a second, but I, I think I just did, Liz. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you did. Good job. Uh, good job. Uh, but it's smart because brand's important. And if you want to differentiate in today's world, um, uh, you, you need to have a strong brand. And back to your point, Liz, I did, I don't get offended when people prognosticate what I, what I, um, although it may, I may uh, come off that way. It, it actually, <laughs> it actually, it, it makes me upset because most of the people who are prognosticating haven't been a college administrator over a financial report. I agree. I agree. They, they aren't looking at the day-to-day -day finances of an institution. If you look from the outside in, you see endowment, you see revenue. You could look very simply at those, th those things and come up with a calculation. What you don't see is the ability to manipulate variables you know, that will affect your revenue up or down. You have expenses you can cut or manage, which of course none of us want to do that. But, but that's what it is for me, Carlos, is, is this, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, all these colleges are going to close and, you know, maybe somebody will be really right. But there's a lot of innovation out there, especially when, when we speed up and COVID has made us speed up. So that's, that's a long way around for me. It gets my question, which is, What's spring look like? Do you sit down with your team now and go, okay, everybody's going home for Thanksgiving, but we're really looking at spring now in terms of planning. Right. How do you plan for in any other year? That's easy planning. This year, it's not so easy. This episode of the EdUp Experience is sponsored by MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a digital marketing agency with a vision of creating education, marketing, and technology programs that improve people's lives. 
specializing in student nurturing programs, digital advertising, marketing technology, and digital printing, MDT Marketing's seasoned team is entrusted by higher education institutional leaders to develop personalized communication strategies that are compliant and highlight what differentiates their institutions. Learn more about MDT Marketing at mdtmarketing.com. Boy, you're right. And I know for us, it's this myriad and layered planning. You know, one of the questions we really have is what what impact did COVID have in the fall that will lead some in the spring to stop out? You know, what, what will that persistence rate be and how will it mirror what it's been in the past? I mean, we, our melt was extraordinarily low. I mean, the lowest, certainly in the five years I've been here and one of the lowest I've ever heard of. And I think so many students were so tired of not doing anything that coming to campus was the best option and they, and they stayed. But now, you know, 16 weeks later, I'm wondering if it's not just COVID fatigue, it's like, oh man, is that, is that really what I wanna go back to with this investment of dollars and time for the spring? So I would say that's one of the things we're trying to do. We've got this campaign where we're literally talking to every single student, you know, and, and in some ways it's just a brief, even bi-weekly, we just wanna hear a couple of times a week hit one of those faces, you know, is it a yellow, red, or green? How are you doing today? But we feel like this retention work that we've done is more critical than ever. So that's, that's number one in terms of planning. But then, yes, it's, uh, gosh, I said we have 23 sports. Almost all of them want to play in the spring. And we even released a schedule with our conference that gets most of them some activity on the pitch or on the court in the spring. So there's a, a real change. Testing that's going to come along, not just with the athletes, but across the board, more testing than ever before. And of course, I want to say vaccinations. I'm certainly hoping that the vaccine will kick in sometime in the spring semester. But I think one of the things we are thinking most about, Joe, is that we do not want to lose momentum. It's so easy to fall into this COVID morass where you feel like, you know what, we're just going to hang on until this is over and then start thinking about tomorrow. But we realize that we cannot lose another semester. You talked about the COVID acceleration. So that's one of the things we're holding on to. We actually started these block meetings where we just kind of block three hours a week and we say, you know what, this is, we're going to take one initiative and we're just going to gnaw on this elephant until we can get this part of it done. And uh, just one of the ways of trying to get through the spring and then beyond. Yeah, I think that's, that's so well said because I, you know, I think you're right on and it's easy. You're right. It is easy to go, oh, <clears throat> maybe this is going to end soon. So let's just um, dig our heels in, wait to see what happens. But that can, we can't do that, right? None of us can do that because the students aren't doing that. Right. The students are already making decisions that are putting us, us, I say us administrators on the reactive uh, line instead of the proactive line. And we're working very hard, I think, across the, the country to get proactive again, because we're really, really responding to how the students are reacting to, to COVID. Um, so talk about infrastructure. You know, you, you, um, your enrollment is either where you want it to be or it's not where you want it to be. You are planning into the future, you have set resources. Do you have the infrastructure as it exists now to operate in whatever a new normal looks like and whatever you and your staff have designed that new normal might be? Do you freeze resources? Do you add resources? Do you, you know, open up the coffer, so to speak, or do you really, you know, manage that expense to a level uh, of a wait and see how have you rationalized through the, the financial part? Uh, in, in the infrastructure piece of, of all of this? That's a great question. I know as a young administrator many years ago, I picked up a big tome on higher ed finance. And I think the opening paragraph started with a line that said something like this, there is never enough money, period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, when I saw that Harvard stopped serving hot meals for a short time during the 2008 uh, Great Recession, because uh, you know they had hold, holdings of uh, of trees in Brazil. You know these um, that was part of their portfolio, but they were cash strapped and had to stop serving hot meals. It tells me that there's never enough money. But in terms of infrastructure, I would suggest that we have 
capacity in some ways because what I'm looking to do is de-densifying some of our campus because I believe that we'll, we'll still have a solid in-person residential campus long into the future. But you know, that campus has been maybe at 2,500 and I would say it's probably gonna be closer to 2,000. So part of what I'm thinking is let's bring some of maybe one or two old dorms down. Let's uh, reclassify, if you will, uh, the way we approach uh, student services to be a little bit more nimble there. You know, we, we just launched, uh, thanks to the generosity of a few donors, a $10 million indoor field house. You know, uh, mm -hmm. at the same time, we sunsetted about 20 majors where we said, you know what, we've got less than 10 majors in each of these. We can still offer the, the, the program, so we don't have to offer a full degree. So to me, it's you all, you're never going to have enough money. It's about what are the priorities and how does that measure up against what your plan is for the future. So our plan is strong core residential primarily professional schools with a very strong liberal arts program. That, so that core of about 2000 students or so. Continue to grow our online, including correctional ed program, do more graduate. And then we're talking a lot about this 60 year curriculum. I know at least one, I think I heard uh, one of the podcasts where you spoke directly to another leader who was talking about this. We think there's a lot to that. You talked about brand, you know, it's from what I hear, this began percolating among some thought leaders who said Apple and others are onto something. When they tell you, you have to upgrade every three years and you believe it and do it, that brand is so strong and the brand loyalty is so strong. And we have that. Our brand is strong, particularly in Ohio and in this region. So we're really plugging into that and telling 18 year olds, we wanna be your educational partner for the next 60 years. It's a little daunting when we tell a freshman that, but you know, that's our thought. You're, you're going to need educational upgrades every few years. Ashland is going to be your choice. So how that you know, gets monetized, we're, we've talked about everything from subscription services for our alums to a number of other approaches. We haven't settled exactly in on that, but one of the things we've said is that as part of your tuition, we're going to offer you professional development as long as you need it. And so we're actually baking that in to something that we're calling the Ashland Promise. So we're, we're really dialing into that, believing that that's definitely one of the ways forward. I like that. And I think uh, Liz, that was Zamrit Alualia from the Evolution that was talking about the 60 year. Yeah, absolutely. This whole idea of being like a partner in education and looking long term, not just that today, but beyond and, and really developing that partnership and that brand loyalty with students. So I think really that you're onto something because students really, uh, everything is changing and everything's evolving. If we can be agile, nimble, I love the word nimble, as you said, and develop some of those um, close brand affiliations and relationships with the students then we really have created like a lifelong uh, partner in that student's mm -hmm. journey. So it's really salient point that you're mentioning there because it's definitely something that we need to think about as a sector. Um, before I have Joe just ask, ask the last couple of questions because we definitely want to be respectful of your time and really appreciate this time that you spent with us. What would you say would be the priority as far as the demographic of student you're dealing with and some of the, the special situations that might be coming up? Because I noticed that, and I didn't realize that you guys had so much in terms of like the student um, activities. I, I knew, mm -hmm. I, you know, I've always been familiar with you guys and I've always uh, followed the, the fact that you have a really good um, online footprint, but I didn't realize you guys had so much in terms of like you mentioned the sports and the fraternal organizations and the rec organizations and student leadership and the, um, diversity organizations and the Christian ministry on campus. What are some of the things that you're doing just to ensure that with all of that, you're just meeting whatever special needs that students have on campus, maybe mental health or student support, or what, how is that going to change as we go into this new term? And, and maybe things that you're saying, you know what, let's throw this in here because this is something that's come up and we know this particular demographic of student that's different than maybe the students that myself or Joe, Joe do, deals more with grad students. My students are usually non-traditional returning um, adult students, but your students are a little mm -hmm. bit different from that. So how do you navigate that element? 
Great question. I think in a couple of ways, we all know that our world is changing. And I know I did some consulting for schools like Ashland as a Latino leader and talked to them about how to be more welcoming yeah. for Latino students. And Absolutely. of course, one of the things I tried to emphasize is this, it can't be something that you just kind of hand off to your diversity officer. It can't mm -hmm. be something that, okay, you know, throw some darker skinned folks into your marketing uh -huh. materials. It can't be mm -hmm. a strategy that says, well, you know, hire one or two, you know, faculty members and then make them advocates. Those are all ways to get at this, but this is something that is a sea change. It's a way to yes. help look deeply into who you are and who you're not, you know, mm -hmm. and we are, we are not only a PWI here, but 97, 98% of the folks in our county are white in Ashland County. And so yeah. one of the things that we have seen is we've, we've talked about being welcoming, but we have had more discussions, hard discussions about what are we missing? You know, what is the implicit bias that's inherent at a place that just has operated one way for a long time? And so that's one of the things that we've done. And we've really tried to lean into student leadership here as well. We've got some experts. We have phenomenal people on our campus who help lead the conversation from the faculty side. We do have a great diversity officer here on campus, but we said, you know, we're all diversity officers. This isn't something that we hand off to somebody else. You know, what, what does it mean to you and how are you ensuring that you're doing everything you can to help every student realize their fullest potential and see them for who they are. So this accent on the individual, I guess, is what I'd go back to. Yeah. You know, we talk about these IEPs that are done for students. We, we feel like that should never be lost, never. We think every student deserves that, you know, and it's not just an instructional plan, it's, it's a life plan. And trying to help them see within this framework that who you are is much more important than what you do. What you do is important. But let's not minimize this educational experience as some sort of, you know, training for job. You know, if you want job training, you can get that almost anywhere. If you want life training, if you want to grow as a human being, if you want to probe deeply the intellectual questions that have shaped men and women of all colors, shapes and sizes for decades and history, through, throughout history, then, then let's have that discussion. So part of it is being more intentional about that, getting back to those questions, talking to individual students and having students from different groups really lead those discussion in, in honest, sometimes very difficult ways. Great, thank you for that. You know, Liz, you brought up something and, and uh, Carlos, you just said it perfectly and it's, it, it bears repeating, which is diversity, equity, inclusion is not something that right. you just hand off to somebody and say, okay, we're better at it now because we've got, you know, we've got to, you know, Cindy over here as our diversity, equity, inclusion expert. You know, it's a state of mind and every leader in every organization has to be a diversity, equity, inclusion leader or else it doesn't work or else it's just a passing fad rather than an embedded principle, right? And I, and I, you said it so beautifully that it just, it's just not handed off. It is something that we really have to believe in and embed within our organization. And I, and I appreciate that you say that because I think that's really the realness of, mm -hmm. of what DEI is. And Liz, you, you're at the forefront of, of these efforts. I, mm -hmm. I hope I did you right by saying it in that way, but, I, but it's true, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely something that uh, Dr. Campbell said very eloquently that it has to be kind of baked into the, the and embedded into every area and it's part of the fabric of the way that you deal with students and the way that you deal with everyone on an individual basis and that's really what it really boils down to is seeing people as individuals and treating them as such and, and really embracing and helping that person on their journey and um, it's not one size fits all because nothing in life is one size fits all so I'm that's really the glad case that that has uh, been highlighted because that's really important to understand. Well, Carlos, we've got, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got our final two questions for you. And uh, the, uh, I'll give them both to you and you can answer them in whatever order you'd like. The first and easiest question, we're going to quote you and send it out to every media agency in the country. No, we won't do that. What does the future of higher education look like? And number two, what did we miss? Anything you want to say about Ashland University, which of course is the place where you teach students how to think, now what to think. So anything you want to say by Ashland and, uh, yeah. and we'll go from there. Thank you for remembering that uh, trademark line. Thank you. There you go. 
<laughs> well, the future of higher education. So here it is, folks. Uh, write it down. Send it out. This is uh, <laughs> this is the script. Oh boy, my crystal ball just. Hold on one second. <laughs> <Got> it. <laughs> oh, it wow. just paused. So yeah, yeah, we got it. Can't believe it. Got foggy on me. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think we're definitely going to see more investment by our government in, and even at the state level. So you're going to see more investment in higher education. You know, the idea of, of free education, while it's been touted and been on in headlines, those of us who've been close to education know it's been close to free at almost every community college in this country. It's 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 pretty inexpensive. It's not so much about cost. It's about the system, you know, there are minority kids who are still ignorant of the system, incredibly bright kids that just don't have mm -hmm. the background in the system to navigate it effectively. So higher mm -hmm. education has to, I mean, the idea that the FAFSA is still something that's being argued, not only in the you know, halls of Congress, but, you know, let's make the FAFSA less difficult. I mean, that's literally been a discussion for 20 years of my career. Can you hear the frustration in my voice when I talk? Yeah, about it? yeah it's very frustrating. As a, as a first gen student, right. I'm, I don't understand how they can still require my parents are like, I don't know, go fill that out. Like, go take that. I don't, I have no idea. I can't. There you go. So it's, it's hard, there you, you know? So yeah, for sure. And then you've got people, you know, who are paying for coaches for their kids, you know, uh, resume coaches. I mean, come on, folks, you talk about disparity. So, so higher ed, what you're going to see is the elite schools, I believe, there'll be increasing pressure on the elite schools to say, you know what, you pen, look into your backyard. I'm, I'm not saying this to be critical, it's just the reality. Look at your endowment, look into your backyard and tell me that you can't do more for minority students, literally in your, what are the graduation rates at the 15 lowest performing schools in, that are within 20 miles of your campus? And to me, that's the sort of shift that I wanna see in higher education. When you talk about equity, true true equity, that to me, I, I don't want the feds to step in and say, okay, Harvard, you gotta spend down your endowment. I want internally people there to be so convicted to say, what are we doing? You know, how, how is it possible? I can literally hear kids playing on that playground and I don't know what the graduation rates are at that, that school right down the street. So, you know, I, I think technology is going to assist in this. You know, when I think about what, you know, Khan Academy has done in five years and what that will be in, in 20. So we're going to see a narrowing. I think there will be a narrowing of this opportunity gap that continues to exist. But the elites will have some of their mission will be directed more toward assisting in all of that. And then I think you're going to see a rise in quality of community colleges. Community colleges, here's the conundrum. They're serving the students who have the greatest need, but they're the lowest resourced. So I think there'll be a shift when that funding comes in, when that Pell Grant comes up, and it will, it's going to come up soon. Every dollar that the Pell Grant is, has increased will help an elite school almost not at all, but you know what it'll mean to a community college. You're gonna see community colleges having an opportunity to serve their students more effectively. So that will be a shift. There will be a, a reduction and emerging. I think a number of schools are going to see, hey, you know what, we don't have to all do this. We don't all have to have a a menu of options. Let's let's you you take science and technology. Let us take liberal arts. The kind of the Claremont thing. I think you'll see that be part of the shift in, in higher education. And then I believe that you're going to see what you've seen in the Latino population. You know, when Latino students, what maybe five years ago, you know, outpaced whites in terms of college going. So the percentage of Latinos are higher than whites in terms of college going but the back of that funnel is terrible. So I think you're gonna see that funnel improve for Latinos and you're gonna see more African-American students mirroring uh, what Latinos have done in terms of getting to college and then getting through. So I think I'm encouraged by some of the trending that I'm seeing there. To me, those are some of the shifts that we'll see in higher education. As far as what else to say about Ashton University, I would suggest that Ashland is working toward a model. You know, I think what we realize is there's no perfect institution. There's no average student. It's one of the reasons why you've got 30 churches within a 
10 mile radius of most, you know, inner cities in America, because you know what, there's, there isn't a size that fits everybody, but somebody walks into your door and says, this is home, this is a haven for me, I can grow here as a person. And I think that's what Ashton believes. Ashton believes that if we get the fit right, and we do the things right on our end, we are going to be welcoming to a lot of students who are wanting to come and grow as human beings intellectually and otherwise. So that's the last thing I'd want to say, except thank you. Thank you both for being committed to higher education. And it's just reflected in not only what we shared today, but the way you shared it, your tone and uh, your commitment is, is obvious. So thank you. Well, thank you for that, saying that. We yeah, we really appreciate that. And uh, you have been listening today, guys, to the Edip Experience with our guest, Dr. Carlos Campo. He is president of Ashland University. Thank you, sir, so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Okay, guys, we're done. Carlos, nice. well done, sir. Oh, he left. Did he hang up? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, he hung yeah, up. He did. Yeah, he's a pro. He was good. He was good. And yeah. I would love to do that article. I know, but I don't have to, I can't do it today. So let's just, can, you want to just do it on Monday? I don't know if we have anything recorded. Uh, are we recording anything on Monday? I don't I'm I think so. Yeah, I can my... do it Monday. Maybe I'll have Elvin schedule it for us because if we don't just schedule it, we're just. Yeah, I happen. think sometimes if we're just like, oh, we'll do it, then we just get busy. So let's just, yeah. whatever you guys want to do, I'll, I'll work around everybody's schedules okay <laughs> yeah we'll figure it out yeah just let me know um what did i want to tell you i want to tell you, you tell something some? i think i had something to tell you oh did you see all those little graphics i did what did you think about i love them i think they're so cute they're adorable they're adorbs I like i thought i could even put all of our reviews into little slides that we could share online if we have something we need to you know somebody one of us needs to share something we could share the review I love them. I'm like all for it. I think they look amazing. Right. I'm going to keep, cool. I'm going to pump out some, uh, I thought the, the, um, the updated one with me and you on it was, was probably like my best one. Yeah. I like that. It's like, it, it has like a lot of pizzazz to it. <laughs> yeah. It's more like, like we're actually personalities now versus two hosts. We are a personality. We, we, we are. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're, we are personality. Yeah, <laughs> You're a go. personality. Let me tell you. Uh, yeah, well, that's what they keep telling me. Right. <laughs> what they say. Well, we have Dr. Gene Norris. Is that, what is that? Chairman of the Executive Board, AACAP. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, so she's somebody I that I know. Um, oh, okay. She, like, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's actually the person that introduced me to Elvin. Oh, okay. So cool. she was the person that I guess... Um, helped come up with EdUp before knowing that she was helping to come up with EdUp. She also heads up a, a board called the, Associ the uh, Association for the Advancement of the College Admissions Profession. Okay. I'm on that board. I'm the executive director of the board. So she's the, oh, cool. the yeah. So we'll talk about college admissions. We'll talk gotcha. about uh, testing. We'll talk about that okay. kind of stuff. So yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. cool, cool. Right. So yeah. So that's Monday. So, I mean, we can schedule it for after that like right after that yeah yeah mm -hmm. that's fine all right all righty all right well you have a good weekend liz you too take care be safe see ya all right bye bye hope you enjoyed that episode to learn more about the edup experience please visit edupexperience.com and if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen live and get the scoop before anyone else. So please always feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really appreciate that. You've been listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business.